Hello, and thank you for tuning into the Green Majority from Toronto's only independent radio station. Today, Stefan is going to be interviewing Max Fawcett, a uh, columnist for the National Observer, about the changing role of government as COVID-19 and climate change uproot everything we hold dear. What a mortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry. A new study out of the journal Nature Geoscience reads, quote, Limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius will prevent most of the tropics from reaching a wet bulb temperature of 35 degrees Celsius, the limit of human adaptation. Wet bulb is the temperature of a thermometer with a moist cloth wrapped around it. If it reaches 35 degrees Celsius, it means the surrounding air is such that any human being will die, even if they are in the shade, in a matter of hours, no matter how much water they drink. The study doesn't mean that any global warming over 1.5 degrees Celsius will necessarily cause most of the tropics to become inhospitable to human life, but it does mean that we risk doing that, and losing 40% of humanity, if we do not limit global heating to 1.5 degrees Celsius. We have thus far caused heating to the tune of 1.1 degrees Celsius over pre-industrial levels as a global average. We are on track to reach 1.5 degrees Celsius of heating potentially within a decade. An open access environmental research letter from the Institute of Physics is stating, quote, the half-degree difference between the thresholds of 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius of global heating may lead to a significantly increased hazard of wildfire in certain parts of the world, particularly the Amazon, African savanna, and Mediterranean. This means, of course, that there is wide variability, even in that moderate increase between 1.5 and 2 degrees. Of course, there are many other factors contributing to wildfires, like vegetation, dead plant material, lightning activity, population, and land use. The annual report from IQ Air is showing that North America was the only continent on Earth that had its air quality drop in 2020. This is because of the record-breaking wildfires that burned 4.3 million acres in the United States last year, which I had forgotten about. Most places saw their air quality significantly rise because of the COVID lockdowns, but the wildfires increased air pollution on our continent as the smoke swept over the land. A study from Nature Communications is showing that air pollution breathed in from wildfire smoke is worse for our health, or at least the health of the animals they studied, than the air pollution breathed in from other sources like car exhaust. It's a study of the fine particulate matter, known as PM2.5, which can be, quote, inhaled into the deepest recesses of the lungs and may enter the bloodstream, impairing vital organs, including the lungs. A study in the journal Science is showing that the flow of rivers around the world are now unequivocally at the mercy of the climate crisis. Co-author Yadu Pokrel is quoted in Science Daily as saying, quote, 
Previous research has shown that river flows have been changing over time globally, but the causes were not known. This study shows that the change in stream flow annually, or during droughts, was primarily caused by climate change during the last 30 years. This suggests that we are on course to lose more and more water in rivers as climate change continues, which could seriously undermine our ability to maintain water supplies for drinking, industries, power generation, and food production. The NGO Rainforest Foundation Norway is reporting that humans have so far destroyed or degraded two-thirds of all the tropical rainforest on Earth. Sadistic scientists out of the U.S. have decided to publish a study in the journal Science saying that fewer butterflies are being observed across the warming and drying landscapes of the American West. They have found a 1.6% annual reduction in butterflies over the past 40 years. I look at our resident vegan hater Stefan Hostetter as I report that a study in BMC Medicine is giving further evidence that meat consumption is bad for your health, and not just because of our frightening practices surrounding animal husbandry, but because eating it has now been linked to 25 common conditions like heart disease, pneumonia, diverticular disease, colon polyps, and diabetes. And it isn't just processed meat either. It's unprocessed red meat as well as poultry. We mentioned recently the initial NDC synthesis report from the UN showing that updated emissions pledges are disturbingly insufficient. Now the UNEP has come out with a paper urging countries to recover economically from the pandemic in a sustainable way, rather than reverting to the patterns that have brought us here. They argue that environmentally-minded spending can be better economically and socially. That, quote, the largest window for green spending is only now opening. And that less wealthy countries are being constrained by debt from a green recovery. This means that our global financial system is holding poorer countries back from environmental investments. They write, quote, Recovery policies implemented today will set economic, social, and environmental trajectories for years, if not decades, to come. Trillions in still-to-be-announced fiscal spending provide the greatest opportunity in decades to reorient for the future. Citizens, businesses, policymakers, and politicians must hold each other to account to ensure that the opportunity is not wasted. Okay, first, I am not a vegan hater. Uh, veganism is almost certainly one of the biggest things a person can do personally in regards to reducing their carbon footprint. Get rid of beef, get rid of pork, you've done a lot of it, but still, it's valuable. What I have an issue with in the past is the ways in which vegan activists have put themselves front and center during actions and conversations in ways that undermine efforts towards climate justice. That's, that is, if you, pardon my pun, the, my beef with the vegans. Oh my goodness yeah um but moving beyond that i feel like a major part of the early post-covid response is going to need to be absolutely massive protests pushing for a green new deal 
because the time is now and the minute we're able to be within six feet of each other is the time we need to be on the streets pushing for this as the window for action will fade quickly once people are out of emergency mode and as the stories note that can spell game over for the climate and the second thing comes once again from this sort of terms project that i've been working on in which in response to my general ask for folks to share ideas in terms that they believe will be most useful for the coming decades, friend of the show, Alex Tavasoli, shared the idea that, quote, you can't go home again. And the idea, simply put, is that the world is irrevocably changed. And that even success will not recreate the world of now or even of our, or of our youth. And that this is something that we, that we as a society, I think, really haven't actually internalized. That no matter what the next century will be defined by, it will be defined by world-shifting change. And given the warming that we're already locked into, much of that change is going to be for the worst. And so I think for those of us who have our heads deep in this work, we have to face that every once in a while. I definitely don't think we need, we need to live in fear or live in that fear. But I do think we need to create space for folks to mourn or else we're just not going to get sort of the, the it, it will never internalize in the way it has to for real action to occur. I, I don't want to detract from anything you just said, Steph, and that was really beautifully put. You made me really excited at the prospect of, of in-person creative direct action and protest again. Like, I feel like that will be really exciting. Something that we didn't maybe do as great a job of as maybe I'd hoped is like, figuring out how to mobilize in really effective ways, like despite or, or like around social distancing. Like, I think that's something that like, maybe we haven't actually, understandably people haven't been super creative the last year. They're, they've been under crushing depression and anxiety and stress, but it's like, I do sometimes wish it's like, we should have come up with tactics other than just like cute, shareable Instagram posts. But, um, but in lieu of that, uh, really stoked for, for in-person organizing and protesting because I think you're right. I think we're we're not seeing the recovery. Well, we know we're not seeing the recovery efforts we need. So we're going to have to start to demand those things in person. Um, but I actually, I do just have a question on something that David said now, probably seven minutes ago. David, when you were talking about the butterflies being observed in smaller numbers, and it was a 1.6 annual reduction in butterflies over the last 40 years. Does that mean a cumulative 64% reduction in butterfly populations between like 2021 and like 40, 40 years before now? Yes. Which is also only 1980. ICN is reporting that the coal company Black Jewel in the United States is hoping that its bankruptcy filing will absolve it from having to clean up the thousands of acres it has wasted in four states. A federal judge recently ordered that the company had to clean up one of its mines in Bell County, Kentucky, uh, but did not agree that the mining ponds were about to burst and contaminate drinking water. There are still many other sites besides that, many of which are in the Appalachian Mountains, and some fear that the leveled mountains, having been destabilized, could collapse under heavy rain and bury people in the valleys if nothing is done. 
Black Jewel workers blockaded coal trains in Cumberland, Kentucky back in 2019 to stop the company from transporting the last of the coal after the company declared bankruptcy and the workers' last paychecks bounced. James Bruggers reports for ICN, meanwhile, that coal communities across the U.S. are asking the government to fund an economic transition for their communities as the U.S. coal industry continues to fall apart. Reading about this Black Jewel coal mine closure, it seems like a bit of a canary in the proverbial coal mine. Um, because, because it's cases like this that sort of dictate how things are going to go um, in the in the coming years as coal mines uh, across the world in the United States and Canada increasingly start to start to close down and not only coal mines, but um, oil and gas operations in general. Looking into this, it's yes, there's there's the case that if they are able to successfully file for like, what is it, Article 11 or whatever, whatever um, bankruptcy is, um, is that they might not have they might not be responsible for cleanup when they have um, these open top, these open, open mountain, open top, open top mines open that up. are that are left unclean and a bunch of land unrestored. And basically their argument is that we don't have enough money to do all of the work that is required. My first thought was, well, then I guess your executives won't get paid, will they? So of course, then I Googled Black Jewel CEO. First thing that comes up, oh, I, I Google Black Jewel CEO and Jeff Hooper net worth because that's who their who their CEO is. And I wasn't at all familiar with this story, but what came up indicated to me that Jeff Hooper, the former CEO of Black Jewel, is partially responsible for the company filing for bankruptcy because he defrauded the company to the tune of like 300 to $34 million, like at minimum. Like that was like one charge being laid against him in this sort of like indictment for fraud. Um which is just kind of a fascinating aside. It's that like, yes, of course this man is to blame for for this company folding, not only because coal is being phased out across the world, but because it was being mismanaged by this greedy CEO named Jeff Hooper. But um, but circling back to sort of my, my initial point around it sort of being a, a harbinger of times to come, um, if Kentucky doesn't figure out how to deal with this and ensure that cleanup is done regardless of the company's degree of insolvency, then that is going to be a state and a region that's left with a whole lot of poison and unusable land on its hands. And it really does go this, uh, it's, it's, it's the same for us in, in another area that, um, is heavily reliant or, um, or has been in the past heavily reliant on extractive industries. And it made me think of, um, what's currently happening in Alberta in the tar sands with tailings ponds, because currently there's, I, I, it's a plan, it's not legislation, but it's a plan that's being proposed. Um, I think it's being sort of like toyed with right now could potentially come into effect next year to make it such that the tailings ponds that we know, uh, hold, uh, gazillions, uh, it's an exact number of gallons of, um, quote unquote water. It's not water. It's uh, toxic sludge, um, in these tailings ponds. Basically the plan right now is just to release it into the Athabasca river at this point. They're like, look, it's had enough time to settle. We'll add a few chemicals to distill it and, and, and pull apart the worst of it. But then we're just going to release all of the, all of this tailing ponds fluid into the Athabasca river. And that's because there isn't enough money to clean it up anymore. And as these companies increasingly fold and increasingly pull out of these areas, unless the government puts in place sufficient regulatory um, mechanisms to ensure that it doesn't matter if you filed for bankruptcy, you are still responsible for this. And if you don't have the money, then that means your CEOs and your executives and your shareholders are going to have to pay for it. Um, 
we're going to have situations like this where we have tailing ponds water going into the Athabasca river, or we have open top mines that are left completely unrestored and unmaintained. Um, and I, I don't know what the solution is other than for, other than to see, uh, government regulation, but it's, um, we're going to increasingly see this as an issue going forward. And I mean, we've known this for a long time, but it's just another story. No, yeah, for sure. There absolutely has to be a way to hold the investor, the investor class accountable for companies that have profit that they've that they've profited off of, and then try to use bankruptcy as a way to avoid cleaning up at environment destruction. Like if you have made money in the past ten years off Black Jewel, then you should be taxed in some fashion to pay to clean this up. It's the like there we. To allow these these investor classes to suck all the money out of companies and then declare bankruptcy and avoid doing this is a absolute recipe for disaster that we see everywhere, including in abandoned oil wells. You know, it's not tailing, just tailing ponds; it's also abandoned oil wells. It's anywhere this is happening; it's happening everywhere, and it it's unsustainable in every way and has to be stopped. The indigenous land and water protectors and their allies, who are rallying, camping out, hunger striking, and campaigning against Line 3, are expecting that the coming spring weather will bring more people out to fight the pipeline. It is owned by our beloved Canadian company Enbridge and is being built through northern Minnesota. For the United States, of course, it is a foreign company working with law enforcement and giving money to sheriffs to incentivize police crackdown on protesters. Senior Vice President of Enbridge, Mike Fernandez, says the pipeline has to be built because the economy relies on the oil for heat and transportation and plastics for computers and TVs. Fernandez also compared pipeline protesters to people who did not want to accept Biden's electoral victory. Winona LaDuke recently told Yvette Feliciano for PBS that it's the end of the party, that we don't need any more pipelines, and that no one wants to be left holding the bag. Jane Fonda, squeaky clean and freshly vaccinated, recently arrived at the site to join the Ojibwe water protectors who invited her. Attorney Tara Huska told Tara Lohan for The Revelator, quote, Direct action is not just about getting arrested. It's about standing with the earth in a real way, putting something at risk and being uncomfortable. I don't think that we're going to solve the climate crisis comfortably. I don't think we're going to solar panel or policy make our way out of this massive existential threat we're facing. It's been calculated that the pipeline will ultimately produce the carbon equivalent of 50 new coal plants, and that sequestering that carbon would require 227 million acres of new forest. Some legal opinions are due by March 23rd that could move the case against the pipeline forward with the U.S. federal government. All right, 227 million acres of forest. For absolutely no prize at all, Dave and Lauren, can you guess which province is 266 million acres? Of just square land? Of just square land. Um, Manitoba. I have no idea how big an acre is. Um, Newfoundland and Labrador? Ooh, both of you are wrong. It is Ontario. Mm. 
meaning that to offset the GHG emissions of just this one pipeline, we would need to create a forest just under the size of Ontario. Or put another way, it would be a forest the size of France and Germany combined. And this is why, like, carbon se sequestration is a false solution and something that we shouldn't be investing bucket loads of time and energy and money in because it's like, that's, that's impossible. You yeah, can't we, do that. Even if it were like the worst version of like a monoculture plantation forest, that's bananas for this one piddly pipeline. That's barely getting any coverage to begin with. Mind yeah. blown. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's, that's, that's all I got. I, huge respect to those fighting line three and TMX and all of the other extractive plans out there, because as you know, Lauren mentioned, you know, the best way to sequester carbon is to not burn it at all. I want it on a t-shirt. Um, no, I'm really excited. Well, I'm not really excited. Well, no, I am. I'm excited over the next few weeks because we know that Biden is hosting this, um, summit on April 22nd. That's one of sort of three big moments. There's like the April 22nd summit. And then there's another summit in September. And then there's hopefully leading up to cop at the end of the year. But like this April 22nd summit, we're expecting a bunch of, um, sort of like, I don't know. I don't want to say leading countries. That sounds gross. I can't remember the official term, but there's like a bunch of sort of like global North nations that are coming together at this April 22nd climate summit. And they're supposed to be bringing um, new targets to present. And, but uh, basically in the lead up to that, we do know that, um, the pressure is going to be turned up on a bunch of different sort of campaigns. One of them where like I'm expecting to see some movement on and some really rad campaigning around is line three. So I'm really excited to see what these campaigners bring to the table to sort of uh, turn up the turn up the heat on this fight in the next few weeks, because I think it has to be said, everybody was really excited when Biden axed Keystone. But we knew Biden was going to ask Keystone because Obama had already done it. So he was just sort of like, right, like that wasn't a big, bold move for him. He was just saying like, well, my older brother did it. I guess I'll do it, too, kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like it didn't actually that didn't expend much political capital for him, whereas canceling line three would actually be a little bit of a courageous move on his part. Um so I think we'll sort of we've, we've seen like pretty decent things out of the Biden administration so far when it comes to climate, obviously not across the board when it comes to progressive issues. But I don't know. I'm I'm I don't actually want to say I'm I'm cautiously optimistic, but I am really curious to see what happens over the next few weeks to turn up the heat on this campaign and what his reaction is, because I think, uh, yeah, we don't need to be excited about Keystone. Keystone was already dead in the water. It's it's this is the one that I'm looking to next to see what his moves are there.
that was the Toronto band Penteo with a song called Hito Na. Thank you very much. And now back to the Green Majority. Okay, and now it is time for the second installment of our Mad Posy Vibes section. Mad Posy Vibes. I hope you're really excited. Like if you forced Eeyore <laughs> to have a radio show. Now time for the Mad Posy Vibes. The sky's falling, the wind is calling, stand for something or die in the morning. The state of Louisiana is planning to re-engineer the Mississippi River back into its old ecological role of transporting sediment down to the shore in order to reverse the process by which the Louisiana coast is being swallowed by the Gulf of Mexico. As Zoya Turstein notes for Grist, the wetlands around the river had been drained and walls and levees had been built so people could live along the river, but it slowed the sediment flow that was bringing dirt to the shore. And now, the land is sinking and the sea levels are rising, and Louisiana has been losing a football field of land to the ocean every hour for years. They will now be building apparatuses to increase sediment flow to the coast, with the help of money from BP, which the company was ordered to pay the state after the Deepwater Horizon spill of 2010. Rutgers University has announced it will be divesting from fossil fuels, which includes not just companies mining or selling fossil fuel products, but those who service fossil fuel companies with infrastructure or other support. They will immediately cease all new fossil fuel investments, divest from funds that include fossil fuels within a year, and divest from all direct fossil fuel investments within 10 years. They were strongly influenced by the students who were demanding the divestment. Black farmers and other farmers of color in the United States will finally be getting the financial relief they have been fighting for for 20 years. Black farmers have been systematically bled of money and land for decades and decades in the United States. The tiny city of Petaluma has become the first city in the United States to ban new gas stations. And more people are apparently becoming vegan in China. The climate crisis, while bringing drought and wildfires to California, will also cause fewer frosts to occur, which will help fruit and nut trees. The city of Seville in Spain is starting to use rotting oranges to make methane to power one of their water purification plants. The nonprofit Green Roots has built a community urban farm for undocumented families in Chelsea, Massachusetts. The hope is to bring the community together around the peril of undocumented people in the U.S. Northumberland, England is speeding up its 50-year project of restoring a network of ancient bogs. A Quebec-based company may have found a way to make high-quality, entirely recycled plastic using a high-tech microwave. The shipping industry has been working on various designs of zero-carbon ships that could make fuel from the ocean itself, use massive high-tech sails, dolphin-like flippers, solar panels, or automated kites. The tiny pygmy hog that is the size of a cat could avoid extinction now that it has been reintroduced into the wild in India. 
personally, I love that we got some pygmy hog coverage on this show. It feels like we never have enough. I'm excited for that network of ancient bogs. I also was excited about the bogs, to be honest. All the potential, the potential for like new bog people stories. We don't talk enough about bog people here on The Green Majority. Water. It means many different things to many different people. But what does it mean to you? On March 22nd, people from around the world will reflect on this very question. They will share with one another just how valuable water is to them. On March 22nd, we will all celebrate World Water Day. Hi, my name is Ben. I am the digital content manager with WaterDocs, an arts and environmental film festival and a registered charity based in Toronto. I acknowledge that the land I am speaking to you from is on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat peoples, and is now home to a diversity of First Nations, Inuit and Métis peoples. I also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit and the Dish with One Spoon Covenant. Every year on March 22nd, we celebrate World Water Day. It's a time to bring awareness to the 2.2 billion people around the world who are living without access to safe drinking water. This is an issue that not only affects developing countries, but also right here in our own backyard. While you are listening to this, there are 38 First Nations communities across Canada that can't safely drink their tap water and are on boil water advisories. This year, the theme for World Water Day is valuing water. For some, Clean water is a privilege and should always be conserved and appreciated. For others, clean drinking water represents a centuries-long struggle for the right to a basic human necessity. The United Nations and our team at WaterDocs invite you to share with the world how you value water. On March 22nd, share your stories on social media using the hashtag WorldWaterDay, hashtag ActionForWater, and hashtag WaterIsLife. If you want to explore how others value water, We have put together an amazing collection of stories, songs, and art on our website. There are also a number of action items you can participate in to join the fight against water injustices in our country and around the world. You will find all this at waterdocs.ca. Also, please be on the lookout for our 10th anniversary film festival happening in the fall of 2021. We have a program full of the latest groundbreaking documentaries and films about water and the climate emergency from around the world but we are also planning other special events for the celebration. So trust us, you don't want to miss it. Follow us on social media at WaterDocs Film Festival and sign up for our newsletter through our website to stay up to date on everything WaterDocs. Thank you to the Green Majority and CIUT 89.5 FM for your continued support of WaterDocs. You have been phenomenal partners and friends to us, and we thank you for welcoming us today. And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe on the podcast, which can be found at greenmajority.ca. We're very excited to be joined by a brand new guest, Max Fawcett 
who's a columnist with the National Observer and former editor of Alberta Oil and Vancouver Magazines, and spent two years as well working in the Alberta Climate Change Office. Welcome, Max. Thanks for having me. So we're going to get into sort of this conversation in regards to this idea of this changing role of government. But first, let's start a, a little bit about intro to you and to your work. Sure. I'm a former magazine editor. I've written about climate and energy, lived in Alberta since 2010. That's what we talk about here. Before that, I worked briefly on Parliament Hill for a liberal government of many years gone by. Studied political science. I guess I'm sort of practicing what I got educated in, which is nice to see, you know, 20 years later. And moved back to Calgary right before COVID hit because I, I wanted to keep writing and talking about the intersection between climate change and the energy sector and, and document what is happening on the ground because very much of the belief that if Canada is going to meet its net zero targets, it's, if it's going to be in alignment with the Paris Accord, it's going to have to happen here. This is where the action is. And there's, there's a lot of action, sometimes too much, but it definitely never is boring here in Calgary. That's very clear. And so given the fact that you are in basic calorie, we'll get into the serious stuff in a second, but I can't help but asking this question because it's been sort of half blowing up on Twitter for the past week or so, which is that the UCP has picked a fight with a Netflix kids show. Can you tell us about this fight? Because it's just so absurd. Yeah, I mean, I, I could use the entire interview time we have to talk about it. It's a kids show on Netflix where where there's a plot line the show is Bigfoot Family, and an evil oil company is planning to blow up a, uh, a nature reserve in Alaska to get the oil underneath. Very sinister, very evil, standard sort of, you know, cartoon plot fare. I mean, we all grew up with stuff like that. Apparently, a parent whose kid watched this complained to, to our quote-unquote energy war room, which is a government-funded apparatus that tries to fight back against the industry's reputation. I mean, it's, it's been in the news any number of times for being just sort of hilariously incompetent, you know, at, at, the, two, at the cost of $30 million a year to taxpayers. But this one, is, this one really takes the cake because they started a petition attacking Netflix. You know, this is used to say you don't pick fights with people who buy ink by the barrel. You probably shouldn't pick fights with people who buy data by the terabyte. But sure enough, that's what they did. And it blew up in their face, as of course it would. And, and The Guardian wrote a story about it. I would not be surprised if The Daily Show did a segment about it. And the kind of cherry on this totally humiliating Sunday is the premier standing up in the legislature today on Tuesday uh, said that it was, quote, a story of success. So the, the war room attacking Netflix, becoming a major news item around the world and embarrassing Alberta is apparently a, so a story of success. So we learn something new every day here. It's also driven up watching this. It's, I believe Bigfoot Family is now in the top 10 Netflix views because of this fact. Like no one was thinking about Bigfoot Family and now more people in Canada have heard about this thing than they ever could have possibly hoped. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think you could get a better metaphor for how bad these people are at their jobs. But, you know, there's that, there's that thing called the Streisand effect where drawing attention to something increases the, the attention to it and, and makes it bigger than it would have been. It's clearly the case here. And the irony as well is that it also draws attention to the fact that, you know, in the storyline, this is happening in Alaska, but it almost happened for real in Alberta. So in the, in the late 1950s, there was a proposal that was taken very seriously by the provincial government here to use nuclear weapons, not kidding, to extract oil uh, in the oil sands. Now, at, at the last minute, they sort of backed away from it because it became clear, I guess, to the right people that this was completely insane. 
But this is not some like figment of a Netflix writer's imagination. This was a thing that they wanted to do in Alberta. And now that we've decided to draw attention to it, there's probably tens of thousands of people who never knew about it before that know about it now. So, you know, I, I've had this conversation with, with friends of mine here as to whether they're deliberately incompetent, like is there some sort of longer game they're playing or, or are they just the worst communicators in the history of communicating? And I, I think they, you know, this is Hanlon's razor. Never assume malice when when incompetence could be the explanation. And you know, credit to them, they they've really taken the cake here with with how incompetent they are. Yeah, every time there's a story about them, I can't help but talk about it at least a little bit because it's consistently, as you said, it's a it's a well that doesn't stop giving. Unlike you know the many wells that have stopped giving that need to be cleaned up. But yeah. let's let's dive in and move over to this conversation about the changing role of government. So you've mentioned that you, know, you have a pretty wide-ranging background. You're a columnist as a national observer. So your job is sort of to understand the wider landscape. And so, so what are you paying attention to? I'm very interested in the conversation that I think has been happening ever since COVID hit about what, what is really important to us, what, what really matters, and what things did we assume were a certain way that maybe don't have to be that way. I, you know, COVID has not been a good thing for a lot of people. I would never try to sugarcoat that, but I do think it has given us an opportunity to reassess a lot of things that were just kind of in the background or, or we took for granted. And so we have, a, you know, a federal government that has not put a budget in front of us in, in quite a while. I don't really fault them for that. But when they do, I think it could contain some very ambitious, interesting ideas, you know, things, maybe not a basic income, although that's certainly been mooted properly funded national child care system. There's a lot of options that are suddenly on the table. And a big part of that is our reappraisal of how we feel about deficits, how we feel about how governments run their books. You know, I think for a long time, even though governments always run deficits, uh, it has been assumed that deficits are bad. It has been treated that, you know, a balanced budget is better than an unbalanced one. And there's sort of an emerging school of thought that that's not necessarily the case and that we can run deficits if we have priorities, you know, the priority over the last 12 months was ensuring that we didn't all die of a pandemic and, and we kept our economy and our, our social safety net intact. And I think if we've done, now that we've done that, I think people are going to very rightly start asking, well, why can't we do it for other things? Why can't we do it for climate change? Why can't we do it for childcare? And I think the answer is going to be a lot trickier for governments than it used to be. Yeah. And I want to get into that sort of question about deficits in a second, but first let's keep it a little more broad and dive into exactly what you mean by reappraising the role of government. How do you think people saw government previously and how do you think that's maybe changed? I mean, certainly for people my age, I was born in, in 1979. For as long as we've been conscious of politics, we've been in a political culture that doesn't have a high opinion of government. It was forever smaller government, cut taxes, reduced spending. And when government did things, they generally did them poorly, incompetently, whatever. You know, I mean, even, you know, when Bill Clinton got elected in 92 and, and the federal liberals got elected in 93, they behaved like conservatives. You know, they cut spending, they slashed the welfare state. You know, that was the consensus through most of my life, our lives. And I think we saw it get tested during the 2008-9 financial crisis, but maybe because it it happened too quickly, maybe because it was all confined to, to Wall Street and Bay Street. We didn't really reassess a lot of things. We just we just wanted to get back on our feet. I think this time with COVID, it really has been a shock to the system. And I think a lot of people, despite the rhetoric from some circles, mostly conservative ones, 
where they've talked about how governments are spending too much and they're running up big deficits. I think most people understand that they would be in a much worse place right now if it wasn't for the amount of money the government spent over the last 12 months. That governments can play a positive role in our lives. And I think that is going to open up uh, a whole new conversation over the next, I don't think it's going to go away in, in six months, right? You know, we're going to have an election in Canada fairly soon. I think the election will be all about this. I don't think it'll be the only election that's about this. I think the new question that politicians have to answer is not how small can you make government? It's how big should you make government? And I, I think there are some politicians who haven't realized that yet, but I think there's a pretty strong case that we are now entering not necessarily an age of big government, but an age of more ambitious government. And I, I think that's good, you know, cards on the table. I think that, that there are certain problems, challenges that the private sector cannot answer on its own. It just simply is not capable of doing it. And we need all hands on deck. So I look forward to it not being a rehash of the Reagan and Mulroney years. So if we can take a second then dive into the ways in which this might be possible. There has to be obviously a shift in thinking from the Reagan years to, to now, you know, what tools are available to the government to, to act in this sort of more ambitious way? Well, I mean, the, you know, the, the big tool is, is raising taxes and, and we haven't gotten there yet. I think we will in, in the States, you know, the Biden administration has started to reverse some of the dumbest Trump aspects of the tax changes they made and, you know, estate taxes, taxes on super wealthy people. I think there's going to be an enormous appetite for that. I think that's particularly true because if you look at the data over the last 12 months, if you're an upper middle class person, you know, you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, you're a financier, you have made so much money, right? Especially if you live in Toronto or Vancouver, your house is appreciated by 25% in value. Your stocks have all gone up. You've saved money because you don't have to go out and travel or whatnot. So, you know, there's going to be a reckoning and people who are in the top tax brackets had better get ready to pay more because it's coming. But there's also sort of a wider reappraisal that, that happened, which is that governments ran deficits that previously, I don't think people thought could be ran. You know, they were 30, 40% of GDP, just enormous deficits. And, you know, I'll get a little bit wonkish here, but, you know, the Bank of Canada, our central bank, was in there basically buying the bonds that the government was issuing, which is thought to be a very experimental, risky thing. And it, it's not clear that anything particularly bad has happened. Uh, you know, certainly housing prices may have gone up as a result of that. But, you know, in the near term, if you're trading higher house prices for the economy not collapsing, I think most people will take that. So it expanded the scope of movement for governments where we've seen conservative governments, for example, and politicians try to pass, you know, balanced budget legislation. In some cities in Canada, you can't run a deficit if you're a city. That's a really tricky and deliberate attempt by conservatives to, to hem in politicians and to kind of box governments into a smaller space. And I think COVID's proven they don't have to be in that space. And I think the appetite from voters will now be, can you do more as opposed to would you do less? And so that could mean them exploring something called modern monetary theory, which you know is still very experimental, quite quite talked about in the econ community, very contentious. Lots of people don't like it, but the basic principle is that we don't need to be as afraid of deficits as we've been trained and taught to be. And it's not that deficits are bad. Inflation's bad. Uh, inflation, when it gets out of control, is is very bad thing. It's bad for everyone. It's bad for middle class people. It's bad for rich people. It's bad for poor people. But as long as inflation is under control, you can run deficits. And 
there isn't the same correlation between deficits and inflation as maybe people used to think. So th this is all getting turned over and, and reassessed. And I think it's an exciting time to be young and to be someone who wants to see governments make change. You know, if you're in the climate community, if you want to push governments to take bigger risks, well, here you go. Here's your, here's your license. Here's your invitation. They've been proven by events over the last 12 months that they can do these things. And now you just have to convince them to do them somewhere else. Yeah. And I think that's the part of it that I think really does become quite interesting, especially in some ways I see what you are talking about mimicked in the difference between how the response to you know, a price on carbon has been compared to a, the response to the Green New Deal. You know, lots and lots of studies have shown the Green New Deal is significantly more popular than a price on carbon, you know, despite the fact that for a very long time, a price on carbon was considered the holy grail for climate activity. And it was successfully poisoned by the conservatives through a, through a messaging campaign. And what's funny is that now we're left with this dramatically more ambitious, dramatically more left-wing approach of the, of the Green New Deal. And so I'm curious how you sort of see this being employed. If the government is taking steps to be more active, where do you see those steps coming from or going to? In, in Canada, it's, it's a bigger challenge than it is in the United States, just because the oil and gas industry is a bigger part of our GDP than it is down there. And so we have to be more careful not to break something as we're building something new. And so I think good policy on this will irritate both those in the oil and gas industry and those who hate the oil and gas industry. You know, that it'll be that messy middle. But, you know, I think one thing that progressives have learned over the last 10, 15 years, and I think AOC is, has really pushed them on this effectively, is you don't have to make policy proposals because you think they're going to get implemented. You make policy proposals in part because you shift the conversation, right? You show people what is possible. And by showing them what is possible and by encouraging them to think about things like the Green New Deal, you can shift the consensus in the middle. You know, I think it's clear and, and uncontroversial that the Biden administration would not be doing what it's doing without that Overton window shift, right? That without progressives pushing hard on blue Democrats and whatnot to, to really be a little more ambitious here. And I think we could see the same thing in Canada, especially if we get another minority government, right? If it's the NDP propping up the liberals or if it's the NDP propping up the conservatives, who cares? They, they can make that the price of admission. And you know, the federal government in Canada is a little more constrained than it is in, in the states. You know, provinces are stronger than states are and they can push back a little more. But I think we are going to be surprised at how fast things will move in this country after we have our election. Before the election, there's going to be a lot of talk. Everyone's going to be, be pretty cowardly about, about the scale of act, activity. But if, you know, if the liberals get four years, I think they will move pretty decisively because it's, you know, it's clear you know, when Mark Carney is out there giving speeches about how this is table stakes, his voice carries a lot of weight within the Liberal Party of Canada, and he's hardly alone on this stuff. So, you know, I, I think we've, we've gotten a little frustrated at how slow things can move. I think we'll be surprised at how fast they can go. I, I sincerely hope you are right. So thanks so much for all of that. And the last question I have is sort of the question I ask a lot of people who are in your position of sort of more general, which is, you know, from your perspective, what should people be paying attention to and what are you paying attention to? I'll sort of like amend the question a little bit and answer it as what should people in Alberta be paying attention to? Because, you know, as I said, to me, this is where the action, this is where the heavy lifting has to happen. And, and so this is where I'm sort of most attuned to people's attitudes, changing or not changing. And I still get the sense in this city, 
and in this province that people don't think Joe Biden won the election. And maybe, you know, who knows, maybe that's because they buy the rhetoric from Trump and all of his proxies, or maybe they just don't want to believe it. But this is a different world. This is not a world where the president of the United States, uh, you know, believes in the oil and gas expansion and, and, you know, burn, baby, burn, build, baby, build. You know, this is a president now who is more serious about climate action than any in human history. And even if he's not as serious as some people would like him to be, he's very serious. And, you know, we saw that with Keystone XL, how quickly and, and just sort of decisively that was spiked. And that's not going to be the, the outlier. That's going to be the norm going forward. And if we want to play ball on their field, and make no mistake, Canadians always need to play ball on America's field because that's, you know, they're 10 times as big as us as an economy. We need to get our act together. We need to, we need to become not just sort of reluctant in adherence to the energy transition. We need to be enthusiastic participants in it. We can't have our government here picking fights with Netflix over a stupid children's cartoon because it hurts somebody's feelings. We need to have a government here and, a, and an industry with its leadership that fully embraces the reality of the energy transition and wants to do it as fast as possible. And we're not there yet. So I hate to say it, but I think the beatings will continue until morale improves, as the old saying goes. I, I think a decisive victory in the next federal election would help people get off their chairs a little bit. But at the end of the day, the, the, the game has changed. And people in Alberta, particularly people in the fossil fuel industry, have to recognize that and have to start playing the new game or they're going to lose. And that loss doesn't just cost people here. It costs people in the rest of the country because the inability of the oil and gas industry to effectively and quickly transition will cost everyone taxpayer dollars. It will cost money in, in revenue we don't make. It'll cost money in jobs we don't have. It'll cost people money in terms of innovations we don't come up with here. So, you know, we, we do all have a stake in people here getting it right. And, and maybe that's part of my job here is, is to kind of be a thorn in their side and keep reminding them that it isn't the way it used to be. Awesome. Thank you so much for providing your insights. Uh, Max Fawcett, columnist from the National Observer. So great to have you on and, you know, can't wait to have you back when either the next silly thing the war room does or, or maybe some real news comes out of this stuff. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I feel like if it's the next time the war room does something silly, I'll be here next week. But, uh, but I look forward <laughs> to the next time there's news to talk about. All right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week. It's not easy.